Well, I don't know if you know, but I've noticed there's a little bit of a trend happening at the moment, uh, a trend in some Christian circles that kind of says this, we don't really need to go to church to be Christian. Uh, You can be Christian, you can kind of uh, be a Christian, but you don't really need to go to church. I don't know if that's just me, if that's just kind of some of the people I've been talking to, but I feel like it's a bit of a trend uh, at the moment. Uh, there's a book that's just come out. This book has come out in July this year. Uh, it's called this, How to Be a Christian Without Going to Church, uh, The Unofficial Guide to Alternative Forms of Christian Community. Uh, this book that was released in July. It's pretty new. I got an e-version. Uh, you know, you can buy the paperback if you want, $15. It's very affordable. E-version, you know, you get on Amazon, comes on your Kindle, on your laptop, $9.57. Bargain, right? I don't know how they come up with that number. $9.57. I read it last week. Uh, it was an interesting read. Um, but this book, right, it's actually becoming one of the best sellers on the Christian market. Uh, how to be a Christian without going to church. Uh, and you know, when you kind of open it up, uh, it's easy, I think, to see why this is such a popular book. Here's uh, something from the first page. Uh, the author, Kelly Bean, she's just gone through a few statistics And she kind of opens the book by saying this, Here I am on a bright Sunday morning, curled up in my cushy orange chair, sipping tea and loving Jesus. Kind of sounds nice, doesn't it? Um, You don't have to get up and go to church. You don't have to uh, get organised. You don't have to meet a deadline. You don't have to get your family ready, get them in a car, you know, when they're screaming kids. That's kind of my my thing at the moment, you know. I mean, you don't have to do anything. You can have a cup of tea and love Jesus that way. That's their expression of church. Uh, Bean's thesis uh, throughout the book, as you read it, uh, is that it's actually perfectly acceptable for Christians to not attend church. Uh, this is what she says. Uh, the great news is uh, that it is possible to be a Christian and not go to church, but be the, but be the church. Right? You don't have to go to church, you can be the church. Um, be the church without going to church. That's essentially the thesis that Bean is arguing for. And now, I reckon when you look at that, um, there's actually some truth to it, isn't there? Uh, I hope you know that church isn't the building. Uh, church isn't the, the thing that you go to. It's not the structure. It's not anything like that. No church, the church is the people, isn't it? I remember when I was um when I was in Sunday school, we learnt this little rhyme, you'd get your hands, you could go you could do it if you want. It goes like this. You go, here is the church, here is the steeple, open the doors and here are all the people, right? Now, I learned a lot of good things at Sunday school, but that is rubbish. That's wrong. I'm sorry, Sunday school lady, that was wrong. It's cute. But it's wrong. Why? Because the church is the people. It's not the building. The church is the people. It should go like this. I rewrote it. You ready? Go like this. Here is the building. Here is the steeple. Here is the church. The church is all the people. What do you reckon? <laughs> is that all right? Yeah, that's good. The church is the people, right? Ephesians 1, 22. What does it say? Uh, you probably don't know it off the top of your head. I didn't. Ephesians 1, 22. It actually says the church is the body of Christ. That's the people. Jesus is our head. We are his body. We grow up in him. The church is the people. 
And, you know, being in her book, she's actually got, got some of it right, doesn't she? The church is the people. It's not the service. It's not the structure. It's not the building. It's not any of that. You can be the church because the church is the people. Uh, so what Bean and what, what actually many others who I talk to are doing is they're kind of looking at traditional churches, the way they operate, maybe on a Sunday morning, Sunday evening, something like that. They look at traditional churches and they say, we don't need that. We can be the church without that. Uh, we're just going to be Christians. I know what we'll do, and, and you know, to use Bean's language, uh, what she actually says is we'll create more organic forms of spiritual community. Uh, create more organic forms of spiritual community. We'll create places of connection, not tradition. Places of community, not doctrine. Places of sharing, not preaching. They're, they're the kind of lines that keep coming up as you work your way through this book. At one point, uh, kind of to my pleasure, being admitted that she was a little bit nervous about this whole move and how people are moving away from it. She said she was worried for her kids' sake. Uh, worried that maybe her kids might not know uh, the truths of the gospel and things like that. She was worried for her kids' sake. Uh, but nevertheless, um, she also says this. She says, well, kids don't really need to be taught propositional truths. Uh, what they need is a way of life and a community of belonging. Now, uh, these are the things that Bean argues for. And what I want you to do right now is, you're going to take a break. I want you to chat with the person next to you. And just have a go at answering this question, just amongst yourselves. Why do you think Bean's thesis is actually attractive? What is it about it? You know, we can be the church, uh, we don't need to go to church, community, not preaching, all that sort of stuff. Have a chat, I'll give you a couple of minutes. Does that make sense? Good thoughts. You know, when I read the book, um, I really just felt myself kind of fuming in some areas. I got pretty pretty angry. At one stage I thought I was going to burn the book, um, but it was an e-book, so it would have involved burning my Mac, and I wasn't willing to do that. Um, I'll tell you why I wanted to burn the book, was because so many of the thoughts in it are actually, I think, pretty unbiblical. Uh, there's, there's clear moments in the New Testament, Ephesians 4, the pastoral letters, Timothy, Titus, um, maybe the whole book of 1 Corinthians that kind of outlines uh, things that we should be gathering together to hear the word preached. Uh, there's accountability structures which are meant to keep each other accountable, We're meant to spur one another on, encourage one another, celebrate the sacraments. Uh, we're supposed to exercise church discipline, rebuke each other. All these sorts of things actually flow out of many of those New Testament letters. Uh, the early church, of course, developed those and, and God instructed the apostles in ways to do that. But it seems to me that that so much of that is ignored. And that's why I hated the book. That's why I wanted to burn it. Because it's unbiblical, right? But at the same time as I read the book, I actually felt like crying. It actually made me want to cry that people would look at the church, look at kind of what we do on a Sunday, or even maybe look at what we do here on a Wednesday evening, and say, that's not community. That doesn't give me a place of community. That's not a place where I can actually go and feel loved and cared for in the way that the church actually should be operating. See, I think that is the actual place where this book is coming from, isn't it? It's coming from a place where so often our church services and our meetings can just be about preaching and not about caring. 
that it's almost as though our preaching doesn't filter through into the hands and the words of the people around them. And I think that that is a really sad state of affairs. If it's true that so many people are leaving churches because they're looking for genuine connection and community amongst people and they can't find it in the church, then I think that is actually worth crying about. I really do. See, what we see tonight, uh, as we look at 1 Thessalonians, as we see this passage that Paul has written for us, we actually see Paul modelling for us what the community should look like, how they should feel for each other and care for each other and love each other in the church. Paul doesn't say you have to go out of the church to find genuine community. He says, no, it should be happening in the church as we have real deep concern for each other. It actually should, we should be people who care for each other, Paul says. We should actually find joy in the fact that people are standing firm in their faith. We should be praying for one another in their faith. Caring for each other. If you've been here over the past few weeks, uh, you'd know the kind of backstory between Paul and the Thessalonians. Uh, you remember that Paul, he went to Thessalonica, that little Greek city back then, uh, full of pagans, full of people that didn't know the Lord Jesus. And what did he do? Well, he just walked in there and he preached the gospel. He told them the good news of Jesus, that Jesus died on that cross And when we put our trust in him, our sins can be forgiven and our eternal destiny can be changed. That's the good news that he preached. That we who deserve punishment for our sins, separation from God, we can have that whole course of our life changed for eternal hope and life as we put our trust in Jesus who died for our sins. That is the message that Paul took. And you know, the Thessalonians, what did they do? They received it with joy. They said, yes, we want life in Jesus' name. We're going to put our faith in him. And they turned from serving idols, it says in chapter 1. They turned from just living worldly lives, looking for the things right in front of them, and they turned to serve the living and true God. They put their faith in Jesus. And then, after Paul had been there for three weeks, what happened? Well, The Jews, it says back there in chapter 1 and verse 5, they got jealous. They got jealous that Paul was actually getting more of a following than they were and that they got a mob. They got an angry mob and they drove Paul out of town and it said last week in chapter 2 that he was torn away from them. Now the word actually in the Greek is that he was orphaned away from them. It's like as though he lost his children. That's how much he cared for them. Paul was torn away from them after just three weeks. That's the backstory between Paul and the Thessalonians. He went there, he preached the gospel, but they put their faith in Jesus. And after three short weeks, he'd been torn away from them. And what we see tonight in chapter 3 is that ever since Paul has been apart from them, he has had this incredible longing to go back to them. To be with them. He wants to go back to them in order to encourage them in their faith. He wants to see them keep going in their faith. He wants to see if they keep trusting in Jesus. He knows that persecutions would have been coming because persecution got Paul kicked out of there. He knows that there would be pressure to succumb to worldliness. And Paul is worried about them. He has this deep concern for them, for their faith. 
So have a look there in chapter 3, if you've got a Bible or it's on the screen. Chapter 3, and I'll just read the first five verses. Paul says, When I could stand it no longer, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith, so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you previously that we were going to suffer persecution, as you know, and it happened. So for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I also sent him to find out about your faith, that is Timothy, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labour might be for nothing. Paul, you see, twice in these verses, in verse 1 and then in verse 5, he says, when I could no longer stand it, he did something. He acted. He sent Timothy. And do you notice why Paul sent Timothy? Well, he sent Timothy for a purpose, didn't he? Uh, Verse 2, have a look there, to strengthen and encourage them concerning their faith. In verse 5, he sent Timothy to find out about their faith, fearing that the tempter may have tempted them. Paul's deep concern, you see, it's for their faith. Paul's concern is that they keep trusting in Jesus despite the pressures of life. His concern is that they stay on track with Jesus, that they don't wander away from him, that they don't tempt it in, in forms of worldliness or if persecution gets too hard for them. He wants them to be persevering and sticking with Jesus, staying on track. And you know, I wonder, we see here Paul's deep concern for people, his concern for their faith. I wonder if we have that concern. Do we have that kind of concern for one another's faith? Look around. I reckon, how do you get this kind of faith? It's by believing the gospel, isn't it? See, I reckon if we truly believe the gospel, that people's faith in Jesus actually determines their eternal destiny. If that's true, if we believe that, then that'll create a deep concern, won't it? That'll help us actually want to help people stay on track with Jesus. It'll actually prompt us to action. We'll do things because we'll see that some of the decisions they're making, leading them away from Jesus, actually change their eternal destiny, lead them away from him. See, Paul's concern, Paul had a deep concern for their faith. So what did he do? Well, he acted on it. He did something about it. He didn't just say, oh, yeah, I should follow that person up, and then never got back to it. He acted on it. He sent Timothy. He actually sent Timothy at great cost to himself. He was left alone in Athens. Paul, you see, he would actually rather suffer Hardship now in order that they would be safe, in order that their faith would continue rather than the other way around. See, I reckon sometimes it can actually even feel costly for us to follow people up, to check how they're going in their faith. You know, to ask people those hard questions. You see someone maybe in the SU. This happens to me. I have this little moment in my brain all the time, you know. I see someone in the SU who I haven't seen for a while around CU. I'm worried for them. I haven't seen them since maybe a week. And the temptation, you know, is to play it safe. How you going? How's uni? 
Good. All right. Catch around. Just be nice, right? What does that achieve? Doesn't achieve much. Doesn't really show you that I have a concern for their faith, does it? What about hey, how are you going? How's your relationship with Jesus going? How's your faith going? Wouldn't that be a better question? For actually following people up, having a deep concern for them, wanting to act in order to see how they're going with Jesus. That's what Paul's got going on here. Has this deep concern. Why? Because he believes the gospel. He believes that faith in Jesus is actually the ultimate thing in the world. See, Paul, he acted. He sent Timothy. And in verse 6, we actually see that the Timothy came back with great news. Right? Have a look there at verse 6. He says, But now Timothy has come back to us from you, and he's brought us good news about your faith and love. And he's reported that you always have good memories of us, wanting to see us, as we also want to see you. Paul, you see, he acted. He sent Timothy, and now Timothy reports that, actually, they're doing really well. It's good news. He reports how they had good memories of how Paul went and shared the gospel with them. He reports how they'd love to see him again. There's this real genuine connection there, isn't there? Real love between one another. Paul, you see, some people, I think, read read through the Bible, read through the some of Paul's letters, and they think, man, Paul must have just been this kind of strict preacher man. He just went in there and told the gospel and got out of there. No, it's, it's the complete opposite, isn't it? He shared his life with them. He loved them deeply. He um, had this care for them, this deep concern that, actually so much so, that he actually finds his joy in the fact that they are standing firm in their faith. Finds their joy in that. See there, verse 7, Paul says, Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? As we pray earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul, you see, he actually hears about their faith. He hears that they're going well. And what happens? It actually fills him with joy. Because it's a genuine concern that he has had. He's been in anguish that maybe they have fallen away. Remember how earlier Paul said, when I could stand it no longer, I sent Timothy. Well, now in verse 8, what does he say? says, for now we live because you stand firm in your faith. It's a genuine relationship, isn't it? It's genuine care for one another about our eternal destiny. Paul is expressing actually what, what should be happening in the church. Uh, if the church is the body and Christ is the head, well, to have people giving up on Jesus, it's kind of like losing a limb, isn't it? It's kind of like, you know, that's that's the emotion that we see kind of coming out in Paul here. It's like as though, you know, he's really anxious that he's going to lose a leg. You know when you see those kind of movies and someone's had an accident 
And, you know, there's this weird stage where they're not really sure if they're going to keep their leg or they're not going to keep their leg. And then what happens? The doctor comes in and goes, hey, buddy, we saved the leg. And it's just like this ridiculous joy. Yes, we're not going to cut it off. It's safe. That's the kind of joy that Paul is actually talking about here. These people, he was so worried about them, anxious about them. It's like he's worried about an amputation. That's why I think the image of the body is so helpful. It actually helps us see the importance of staying connected, doesn't it? Connected to Jesus, as we hear his word, learn from him, but also as we're connected to each other. See, the author of Hebrews actually says this. The author of Hebrews says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. See, that is, we are to meet together. And we are to spur one another on until that final day when Jesus returns. What you see there is, we're so connected in the body, that our relationships, it's actually like a two-way street. I spur you on and you spur me on. We serve each other. It's never one way in the body. See, one of the quickest ways, I think, to go off track with Jesus is actually to disconnect yourself from a body of believers. Uh, to, to disconnect yourself from maybe a healthy, honest, faithful community of Christians. If you do that, I tell you what, it is a dangerous place to be. It is a dangerous place to be as a Christian. To be perfectly blunt, uh, I think that those who isolate themselves from meeting with other Christians, or even, you know, those who who go along to a service, a church service, but never actually get involved enough to have genuine fellowship, never get to know people, never kind of have regular interaction, maybe join a Bible study group where you can get to know people, never actually have accountability with other people. If Even if you're going along but you're avoiding fellowship, it's actually a really dangerous place to be as a Christian. So what I think we see here with this image of the body in the church is that God has actually designed the church so that we support one another. We all play our parts. We all actually are there to help each other stand firm in Jesus. See, God doesn't save us and then leave us as individuals, does he? No, God actually saves us into the church, into the body. He saves us into a community. So what that means is that we all function like a body does together in order to keep healthy. Uh, We've been given one another to help each other stay on track with Jesus, to encourage one another in our faith. See, practically what that means is that you are the means through which God helps me stay on track with Jesus. And I am the means through which God desires that you stay on track with Jesus. And the person next to you, they are the means by which God desires that you stay on track with Jesus. See how it works? We're all actually in the body, and our role is to help each other stay on track with Jesus, to stand firm. That's what God has made us into a community. A community of believers that are actually here 
to have input into one another, to encourage one another, to keep going in the faith. Ultimately, uh, God is the one who protects us and preserves us. But he uses people, doesn't he? God uses means to accomplish his purposes. He used Paul and Timothy, we see here, to encourage the Thessalonians. And he used the Thessalonians to bring joy and hope to Paul. It's not rocket science, what we see here. We're actually here for one another. Uh, Whether it's this group here on a Wednesday night, whether it's your Sunday gathering, whatever it is, we're here for one another. God's desire is that each of us would work in order to keep others on track with Jesus. Paul actually said Timothy was God's co-worker. He's helping God. We're helping God achieve this task of the perseverance of the saints. We're working with him. What a privilege that is. You know, I reckon when we actually start to, to approach church like this, when we actually start to approach Christian community like this, that it's not all about us, but it's actually about helping one another stand firm in the faith, it actually changes two things. It has two really good outcomes, I reckon. The first outcome is the community that we're attached to, if we all do it, it actually becomes like the community that people are longing for. But secondly, uh, you actually find it more joyful to go. Uh, so there's a difference, isn't there, if I go to church with a consumer mentality that it's all about me, what I'm going to get out of it. You know, I walk in there and I think, this sermon, this better be pretty amazing. This better really please tick all my boxes. Oh, that song, they better sing that song and they better sing it the way I like it or else, you know, I'm not going to be very happy. You know, I'll tell you what, I could go to pretty much any church and walk away disappointed if that's my point of view. Uh, nothing's going to tick all those boxes for me. It's not because I'm, I'm picky. It's just because that's the wrong way to go to church. It's not about us. But remember, if we go to church like we see here, uh, thinking that it's not about me, that it's actually about how I can spur one another on, that it's about others encouraging them, seeing how they're going in their faith, if it's about how I can help them stand firm in Jesus, then, you know, if we all went in with that sort of mentality, then that would be a pretty amazing church, wouldn't it? I reckon if I went to that church, I'd feel loved. Because someone would be asking me about how I'm going. I'd actually feel known. feel like I belong. Because people have come and talked to me. People have got genuine interest in me. They're not just there for their own sake. It's a mind shift, you see. We've got to forget about ourselves. We've got to start thinking about others. We go to church not to be served, but to serve. And that's how the church becomes what God wants it to be. Finally, Paul finishes this section by praying. He prays three things uh, that if these things are accomplished, then we'll have a really healthy church. Have a look there. Verse 11, uh, Paul says, Nay, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Paul prays that they'll actually be able to meet together. It's a real desire of his that they would be able to meet together so they can encourage one another, so he can be there to encourage them, and so he can be there and they will encourage him. 
Secondly, in verse 12, he says, And now may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we also do for you. Paul prays, you see, he prays that when they meet, they would be a loving community. They would care for each other. Thirdly, verse 13, he prays, And may he make our hearts blameless, blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. See, Paul prays finally for their godliness. He prays that they would be blameless and holy, that they won't be entertaining sin. He prays that they won't be getting tangled in sin because if they are, then that is a surefire sign that they'll be taking their eyes off Jesus. He's concerned for their godliness. Three things you see there. Paul prays to be able to meet with them. He prays that when he does, that they will be loving, concerned for one another's faith. And he prays for their godliness, that they'll be living godly lives. It's a good prayer, isn't it? That's what would actually make a good church. You know, I started this morning, uh, not this morning, or evening, uh, started this evening uh, speaking about that book, How to Be a Christian Without Going to Church. And what I hope you can see tonight is that we actually do need to meet together. It is so good for us to meet together. There's a lot of other reasons to meet together, but tonight I've just wanted you to see we meet together because we need each other to spur one another on, to keep each other going in the faith. But more than that, I hope that more than just seeing that we need to meet together, I hope you've seen something of how to be a Christian when we go to church. What our priorities should be when we actually meet together. So we go with the aim of helping one another stand firm in the faith until Jesus returns. To get practical, I've got two challenges. Uh, two challenges um, to kind of finish. Uh, the first one is this. Instead of going to church and just hanging out with your same group of people, uh, my challenge is that you go to church and you speak to someone you don't know. Go and say good day to someone. Seek out a stranger, uh, a stranger who looks lost, and welcome them in. Say good day. doesn't have to be amazing. Uh, it's a loving thing to do, isn't it? It's actually what Jesus has done for us. Sort out the stranger, the lost person, and love them. Now, that's my first challenge. Go to church this weekend and say good day to someone you don't know. Bust out of your little group that you talk to all the time. But actually, second challenge, this might be good for the group that you talk to all the time. Uh, I want you to actually be people who talk well, uh, not just talk about rubbish and worldly things all the time when you go to church. And you know how you know I do this. The sermon ends, final song, you've heard some amazing things, and what do you do? You turn to the person next to you and go, hey, did you watch a footy on Friday? All that stuff you've heard, gone, right? Hey, did you watch the block? What do you reckon about that new bathroom? What are we doing? Do you see that in Paul? Right? What's his concern? His concern is for their faith. His concern is how they're going with Jesus. We've just heard some amazing things from the pulpit where we've been, some encouraging words about Jesus and how we can live for him and 
put on godliness and, and not live for worldliness. And what do we do? We talk about worldliness. So often it's just God's word is lost. Straight away. I mean, you've got to ask, where's our concern for one another's faith in, in questions like that? So here's my challenge. Ask good questions that will help people stand firm in their faith. Question number one, I reckon I've got three questions that might be helpful guides. Uh, the first question is, if, people, if you don't know people very well, try this one out. Instead of just saying, hey, what are you studying at uni? Hey, what do you do? Where are you from? Ask them this, how did you become a Christian? Tell me your faith story. Sometimes you'll meet people who aren't Christian. That's okay. Uh, it's a good question for them to hear because uh, you might be able to share something about Jesus with them. But I think this is such a helpful question. I've had people ask me this and it actually makes me think about my faith. Where I've come from, what God's done for me, how he saved me. It's a good question to ask. Secondly, if you know people a little bit better, maybe ask them something like this. What's Jesus been teaching you lately? Sometimes I think we ask people, how's your faith been going? That's a good moment to have. That's a good thing. But I actually reckon that's a pretty general statement. If someone asks me, how's your faith going, Steve? I never really know how to answer that. Well, I'm kind of okay, I guess. I don't know. You know, It's hard to answer. It's very general. I've had someone ask me this question. Uh, what's Jesus been teaching you lately, Steve? Oh, that's a great question. I didn't come up with it. Um, it reminds me. Why do I think it's a good question? It reminds me that my faith is about a relationship with Jesus. I learn from him. I have to grow up in him. It reminds me of how my prayer and Bible reading are going and how I'm relating to Jesus, what he's been teaching me, even what he's been teaching me in circumstances in life. What has Jesus been teaching you lately? It's a really helpful question to see how we're going on track with Jesus. Thirdly, uh, to kind of pick up the godliness aspect, uh, again, this is a question that someone has asked me. It's not one I've come up with. The question is, if you were the devil, where would you attack yourself? You might need to know someone a bit better about um, before you just, you know, if this is... I wouldn't probably hit the new person that you've just met up with this question, but if you've, you know, if you're in your group because you haven't taken on challenge number one and you're, you know, you're sitting there and it's, yourself. you could ask yourself. Which, which one's yourself? Is it the devil, devil or you? What do you mean? So uh-huh. if you, if you, <laughs> He's being attacked. If you were the devil, where would the devil attack himself? Or if you were the devil, Steve, where would the devil attack you? Yeah, where would the devil attack me? Yeah, I didn't realise that was ambiguous. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. So if I were the devil, where would I attack me, right? What's my source of weakness? <laughs> that didn't work, did it? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think you know what I mean. Yeah. I think it's a really helpful question because it actually helps us identify our own weaknesses. Where are we succumbing to sin? Uh, and at the same time, if someone asks me this question, I say, Steve... If you're the devil, where would you attack yourself? And at the same time, as I kind of confess the sin that I'm struggling with, I have a brother or sister right next to me who can strengthen me and pray with me. I think that is such a helpful question. But kind of these things, I hope they pick up on some of what Paul wants us to be doing, meeting together, encouraging one another in the faith, 
and actually working hard on our godliness, not falling into sinfulness. I want to pray for us. I'm going to pray that, you know, if this is new, if you've never thought about doing this, um, I'm going to pray that this would actually be a bit of a culture change, uh, that we would start doing this. Because I think if we all did, uh, it would actually become the type of church that we meant to be. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have called us into your church. You haven't saved us to just be alone and try to do Christianity by ourselves because it is so hard. But Father, you've given us one another to spur each other on to faith, to godliness, to love and good deeds. So Father, I pray that we would take on that responsibility you've given us to spur each other on. To not just talk about worldly things, but actually to to be concerned for one another's faith. Father, help us to so believe the gospel that you give us this deep concern for one another because we know that eternity depends on where we stand with Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.